0: Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue talking about financial management from a biblical perspective. This is part two, uh, and this is the training on the purpose and uses of money. So I want to encourage you to uh, buckle up and uh, listen to this, because this is not something I hear or I think I've never heard it spoken in a church setting, in a formal church setting, the only time that I've ever heard this is when I teach it in a private setting usually in a in a um, in a class like this or to a small group setting that where I'm invited to teach this so the five uses of money is the essential core teaching of this particular section and I want to give you a quick overview of the five uses of money and this morning we're going to focus in on the first two so the first use of money is tithing. Uh, Proverbs three nine through ten gives us a, a sense of that. It says, we'll "Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will will brim over with new wine." Now, don't don't hear this as a a prosperity message. That's not a name it and claim it or uh intended to to guarantee that you're going to be wealthy remember god's agenda is to fund his will in and through you so whatever level of resources is required to fund his will that's what it is that he will do so honoring the lord with your wealth is a recognize recognize that he's your provider and your source and you are dependent upon him And it really isn't your money. It is ultimately his resources that he's given you to steward. So, tithing has got to be a mindset that expresses itself in habits and practices. And we'll talk about more about how to think about that in a minute. Giving uh, is about uh, giving to serve the purpose of God and others, Uh, it's different from saving and investing. So giving really is about thinking about a, a spiritual return on invest, investment. 2 Corinthians 8-7 is a great text to consider on this point. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. So here we have Paul talking to this person. Christian community in Corinth, which he's already told us is, is full of baby Christians. He's, a, he's admonishing them for what little growth they've done. Excuse me, he's, he's complimenting them. Uh, he's not admonishing, he's complimenting. He admonishes them a lot as well, but he's complimenting them there. And here he's pointing out that uh, putting a challenge in front of you is to excel in the grace of giving. So this is something that they should learn to do and to learn to do well. The third one is saving and investing, which we'll talk about next month. In the house of the wise are stores of choice, food, and oil, but a foolish man devours all his has. All his has. There are some in the Christian community that think that, well, since God's our provider, we don't need to worry about saving and investing. That would not be correct. We have scriptural mandate here to save and invest because God probably has a purpose for you uh, to pass on resources to the next generation so to do that you've got to save and invest furthermore for you to do what you're called to do is most likely going to take financial resources so you've got to save up for that as well and finally taxes is uh, this is the one that almost everybody cringes on and nobody does this joyfully but we're told to pay our taxes taxes in fact the the taxing authorities are those that are called God's servants. They're actually God's ministers. That's literally the word that's used in the text. So he says in Romans thirteen six. this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants or God's ministers who give their full time to governing. And if you back up uh, to about verse 4 of Romans chapter 13, you'll see, that what they're doing is they're charged before God to bring alignment with God to us. They're charged to be tools of helping us obey God. Whether they know it or not, that's what they're charged to do. And the final use of money is living expenses. And 1 Timothy 5, 8 tells us, but if if any provide not for his household, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, an infidel. And that's a pretty serious uh, condemnation. If you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And yet it seems that the body of Christ has uh, been riddled with people that have um, been irresponsible in the name of the Lord, thinking that uh, they're in the, quote, ministry, running out, looking to do what they want to do, putting a wrapper of Christianity around it and expecting God to fund it. And he put, put pressure on other people to fund the work of the Lord and denying basically this very principle here. They're failing to take care of their home in the name of the Lord. So uh, this is a this is a serious situation that the body of Christ today and it's historically been, I think, a fairly serious situation. It obviously was with uh, the people that Paul spoke with in, uh, in the day that he lived some 2000 years ago. So now let's just unpack tithing and giving a little bit more and help you understand something what Scripture has to say about that. So the issue of tithing comes down to an issue of how you view the Bible. For many, it's a very controversial issue because there are some in the Christian community uh, that do not have a high view of, of the Old Testament Scripture. They view basically the norms of the Christian faith As coming from the New Testament, and they really don't pay much attention to the Old Testament at all. Now, I want to disabuse you of that very quickly by pointing out several things. First of all, that Jesus had a very high view of the Old Testament. It was his scripture. That's how he learned the word of God. That's how he learned of God. That's how he learned truth. That's how he was regulated. And when he uh, taught the Beatitudes and other things that he taught, he frequently referred to Scripture and even pointed out that not one jot or tittle of the Scripture would fail to be fulfilled. So he, was, he came in support of the Old Testament law and pointed out the Old Testament actually speaks of him. It a, gives a prophetic picture of who he was and what he came to do. When the church was birthed in Acts 2, it was Old Testament scripture that was the anchor for the foundation of the church. And the conclusion of the argument that Peter made in Acts chapter 2 was very clear, that the Jews can know with certainty that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That was the foundational idea behind Christianity. It's rooted in the Old Testament. So to have a low view of the Old Testament is incongruent with Jesus. Furthermore, it's incongruent with the apostles. The apostles had a very high view of the Old Testament. It was their scripture. There was no New Testament scripture until about the fourth century AD. Now there were writings of the apostles that were circulated during the first 300 years of Christianity but there was no formal recognition of the new testament canon until the 4th century so we have now i think abundant evidence to tell us that that scripture when we talk about scripture it is not limited to the old testament uh, the new testament it embraces the new testament but it is grounded in the old testament and the new testament is simply a set of glasses through which we see the old testament and the thing that we see through the New Testament is the reality that Jesus was and is both Lord and Christ. So, when you have this high view of Scripture, then you go look at the Old Testament Scripture, expecting to find norms of Christianity Christianity in the text. So, one of the norms that you will be faced with is the issue of the tithe. The tithe is many times assumed to have begun with the law that is not correct it preceded the law it is it came it is it is actually showing up in genesis 14 it's the first occurrence and then again in genesis chapter 28 and it is included in the law but it does not originate in the law it's just the law embraces this principle that precedes the law and puts it to use in the mosaic law so the definition of tithe means literally a tenth, and the first occurrence happens in Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, you may recall this is the story of Abram and his, his uh, son-in-law Lot. Now, Lot was uh, symbolic of a worldly person, a person that was wanting to live according to his own will and his own ways. Accordingly, he had separated from Abram, who was trying to live in obedience to God. So Abram is a symbol of a kingdom person. Lot and his family and all of his, the people that he was living with were captured by a king and taken uh, away from where they were living and taken to this other place. And the word came to Abraham about this. And Abraham assembled 318 trained men from his household to pursue this uh these this these marauders that had taken his his nephew lot and their their people and their their goods now i don't know if how many 318 was relative to how many the invaders were uh but it doesn't sound like very many men nevertheless he pursued them he captured um uh, the his the goods that had been stolen, he was able to to get hold of his uh, nephew Lot and all the people associated with him, and they brought them all back. And as they were bringing it all back, they to return them to the city where they lived in. The king of that city, which was the king of Sodom, went out to meet them and to greet them. And along with the king of of Salem, Salem there was also a king of Sodom, brother. There was also a man named Melchizedek whom we view as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Some people call that a theophany. That's an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And Melchizedek is one in the Psalms who tells us, the Psalms tells us he has no beginning of days or end of life. He had no mother or father, which sounds like an eternal being like Christ, which is why many take this as a theophany. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High who handed over your enemies to you. So Abraham was served now bread and wine by Melchizedek, which represents communion with God. And his response to being having communion served by this priest that who facilitated communion with God was to give him a tenth of everything now please note that abraham denied taking any payment for what he had done to rescue these people even though the king of sodom offered him he could take all the goods just let me have the people he said no we're not going to take any goods just you know the only thing we're, were going to take is what my men have eaten He didn't even mention the tithe here, which is interesting, but he gave a tithe of this to Melchizedek. So this is the first occurrence. So you see a tithe is given to the person that facilitated communion with the Father, the Heavenly Father. That's a big principle. Then you see a second occurrence of giving a tenth is in Genesis 28, verse 20. And this is Jacob who had been sent by his father, Isaac, to, uh, to his mother's land, where his mother had come from, to his mother's family, to find a bride. And, of course, Jacob is kind of scared on this journey. This is, this is a challenging situation, a scary journey. And so as he's on this journey, he has an encounter with the Lord one night. And that encounter so, so blessed him that he made a vow saying this, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So he's pledging to follow the tithing principle. Now, for the rest of his life, contingent upon God being his provider, which God certainly was. So that's another example where the, whole, where the Holy Spirit, through this particular incident, is communicating to Jacob God's provision for him and facilitating a communion with the Father. And Jacob's response is to follow the tithe principle. So giving a tenth was a pre-Mosaic covenant practice used to acknowledge God as the source of all provision in life, so let's take a look at the tithe in the law. And now, when the law was enacted some four hundred years later, uh, this tithe principle was preceded the law at least four hundred years, if not longer. There are now three tithes in the law. Initially, eventually it would be five, but initially, as the law was laid out, there were three. There was first the tithe to support the Levites. And Numbers 18.21 says this, I will give the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they're doing serving the tent of meeting. So you see, the, the Israelites were not a kingdom of priests as the New Testament ecclesia is today. Rather, they had people assigned as priests to facilitate communion with God, to facilitate the sacrificial system and to to enforce the law, that kind of thing. So to support these people who gave their full time to this work and were not able to go and support themselves through farming, which would have been the normal way to do it, or being a craftsman would be a secondary possible way to do it. Most of them were farmers. They they were not able to do that. They were not even given land to have farms, so they were told they, that, you, that everyone else had to give them a tenth of what they earned. So that's the Levitical tithe right there. That's the first one. The second tithe is a festival tithe. Basically once a year, Deuteronomy fourteen twenty three records, each tithe, you basically eat the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord, your God at the place where he chooses a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So here this tithe has to do with teaching us to revere the Lord our God, which is to fear the Lord, to honor him, and to therefore surrender to his will and his ways. So that's the purpose of that, is to try to you know, promote loyalty and devotion to the Lord. So that's a festival tide. That's 10%. And then you have the benevolence tithe. The benevolence tide is taken up every three years. So you can see in the little imagery to the left, you'll see uh, basically if you look at it annually— The tithe was 23.33% because you did the benevolence tithe every three years. So you take 10% divided by three and you get 3.33%. So that was the fundamental tithing requirements that were in the law. So the purpose of all of this was pointing us to Christ, pointing us to God, dependence on God, and keeping us hopefully growing and maturing in our devotion to God. Now, in the New Testament, uh you know many people say that Jesus uh, never affirmed the tithe in fact, they say the tithe is not even mentioned in the New Testament, and I want to disabuse you of that that is not correct and matthew twenty three verse twenty three is an example of where it's the tithe is specifically mentioned and affirmed by Jesus. So listen to what he says. woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. That is, you should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former, which is the tithe. You should have done the tithe, But you should also have done justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So he's showing us that with the advent of Christ, he's showing us a better way, a more complete way of walking with God. And so Jesus affirms the tithe as part of the way that we should live in alignment with God. Jesus did not nullify the law. He fulfilled it. This gets back to my opening comments here. The scripture makes it very clear. You, want, you need a very high view of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is scripture. As such, it should be regulative for us as properly understood through the New Testament. You see, to understand the Old Testament now well and correctly, you have to look at the Old Testament through the New Testament, which means you're looking at it through Christ. So Jesus says this about the law. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but but he came to fulfill them. You see, this is what Jesus was about, was aligning with the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is laid out in prophetic form as well as in legal form in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was and is our tutor to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3 is a great text to help us understand God's purpose in the law. The law looks like a failure. It was not a failure, the law was perfect. The problem with the Old Testament system was it required human obedience. You say the humans do not have the capacity. In and of themselves, they do not have the potency in and of themselves to perfectly obey the law, which is why you see you saw Israel fail miserably. Two thirds of scripture is devoted to helping us understand this truth of total depravity, which means man can never do enough good works to be obedient to God. Man can never work his way into acceptance with God. Man can never earn his salvation. The Old Testament law was intended to show us by virtue of our own failure to obey it, why that system would not work. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was humankind, the fallen condition of humankind. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law its, it's perfect state. held up against human beings who fail to obey it leads us to Christ because we cannot self-save. We need a savior. Christ is our savior. And so that was the purpose of the law. So we need to understand the Old Testament correctly. We need to have a high view of the Old Testament and we need to recognize the normative principles that we find in the Old Testament. And Jesus affirming the tithe seemed to show that that was a normative principle for how the Christian community should live. So that's the first use of money which is the tide. The reason it's the first use is because we want to honor the Lord with our first fruits. as I read that text out of Proverbs 3 to you at the beginning of our this lesson, it points out that that's where you first put your resources would something is put into your hands some some resource, some provision, some you know prophet, we should take that and say, first, the first thing we think about is how do we honor the Lord, who has enabled us and empowered us to do this, who provides for us, and he, he wants us to commune with him, He wants us to recognize he is the one who is the source of this, so we show our honoring, our devotion, our obedience, our heart for him by putting him first. And so the tithe gets the first position. Now, the second position, in my judgment, is giving. Because giving is very similar to the tithing, because with a tithe, there's nothing that you get in return directly. You certainly, God is providing for you, but you're not, it's not like an investment. It's not, you're not giving to get. You're giving because you are grateful and thankful And you want to say thank you. And this is a way you can do that. Well, giving is another way that we can express gratitude. Giving is about an intangible ROI, not a tangible ROI. When we talk about savings and investing, we'll be talking about a tangible ROI. ROI stands for return on investment. That's an investment term I've used here. I'm assuming you're familiar with it. So when you were giving, we're not looking for a tangible return, a a profit, a tangible profit. We're looking for a spiritual return that is spiritual profit. Now, sadly today, uh, this whole nonprofit world has really distorted giving greatly. It's given us this impression that we are to only give to 501c3s. Well, a little history here. Uh the, the genesis of what we know today as nonprofits was 1901 in the US. I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the US it was 1901. And the nonprofit status meant that an organization was formed to accomplish something, and the profits of the organization would not go to the people that formed the organization. In other words, there wouldn't be shareholders. As we would commonly think of that, wouldn't be owners as we would commonly think of that, but rather this uh, the profits would be go back into the work whatever this organization did. Now this doesn't mean that it was staffed by all volunteers. You know, nonprofits many times have paid staff. That certainly happens. They also many times have unpaid staff as well. But the the idea of the nonprofit is that it's not so much the, the profiting the people that have formed this organization or who are the owners or shareholders. It's about something that would be considered a higher purpose. So you can see when you start doing that, you've injected Greek dualism in here because every organization should have the same purpose. It's never about profit. It's always about obeying the will of God. Every organization should have that purpose. So when you immediately talk about an organization You know, basically emphasizing, well, the people that formed it are not going to profit from it because they have a higher purpose. Now you've injected Greek dualism. So we need to be very aware of that because that that has largely tainted how we view giving today is we're looking to give in ways that we think support nonprofits. That is not the way to give in my judgment. In my judgment, we want to give according to where God wants us to invest for a spiritual return on investment. You see, when I'm tithing, I'm giving to support those who are facilitating communion with the Father. That is, the people that are helping me grow, mature, and develop and maintain a healthy walk with God. That's where I'm giving t- the tithe, the 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 uh, what I'm giving here in the second aspect of giving, it's not the tithe. It's now giving to support the will of God in some way in, with some person has nothing to do with me benefiting from it. Has everything to do with bringing alignment with God in those people. So we, we recognize that all licit work is ministry, that is diakonia, executing the commands of others. When we see that, we're we're looking for where is it that the Holy Spirit has given us some visibility to see a need, someone has a need that we could help fill that will enable them to better align with God and better fulfill the purpose of God and therefore produce a return on investment, an intangible return on investment alignment with god is an intangible return on investment so you try to do that with children for example you want to help children align with god you want to help spiritual children align with god you may see you may have other uh, relationships that you know or situations that you know where you can see you can contribute and help people align with god better so don't let the current tax laws and the greek dualism that's inherent in them dissuade you into thinking that you've got to give to 501c3s, the nonprofit. The, the 501c3 designation was not adopted until 1969, so that's, that's still a fairly current thing. But the nonprofit, start, the origination of nonprofits in the U.S. was 1901. So it's only been the last 100 years of history, 120 years of history, that we've actually had this whole phenomena of nonprofits, and 501c3s is even more current than that. So don't be dis- distracted with that. That doesn't mean that you can't necessarily give. We had uh, National Giving Day this past week, and I was, uh, you know, I, my wife and I gave. We gave to organizations where we felt there was an attempt to bring alignment with God. That was our measuring stick. It wasn't whether it was a a need that we thought need to be met in the sense of uh, tugging our heartstrings somebody need food or somebody needs shelter or somebody need clothes or things like that it was where were we seeing people trying to bring alignment with god you know there we want to support that and that may wind up being a food gift it may wind up being a uh, clothes it might be transportation it might be books or or resources or sending people on trips It can be those things, but I'm first and foremost looking for who is supporting alignment with God. So a way to think about this, when we see this and you recognize this is a really good thing, you want to be generous. And sometimes it's difficult for us to be generous because we get so caught up with um, perhaps feeling poor, feeling like we, we don't have enough resources to give. Please know this that 2 Corinthians 8 gives us a great picture of what, what generosity looks like. 2 Corinthians is written to a spiritually immature group of believers. We know that from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about them being carnal. So they were not very godly people. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we have more of the... Of, you know, the epistles to first and second Corinthians, more writings from Paul than almost to anyone else in scriptures. He wrote extensively to these baby Christians and he mostly chastised them, but he also complimented them and he complimented them on their giving. And he said this about their giving. He said that uh, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has, has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's using the churches in Macedonia, which is north of where the Corinthians are. The Corinthians are in Achaia, which is in western Greece. Macedonia is north of Greece. And he's using that church in Macedonia to illustrate, you know, what really generous giving looks like. He says of these people, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They saw saints who were trying to live holy lives in need, and they recognized that God used them and called them, and it was an honor for them to give. So here's a way to think about being generous. You can be generous in the midst of severe affliction when you have abundant joy, even though you may have extreme poverty, and you do it according to your means if you have a motivated heart. The motivated heart is you consider it a privilege to give, an honor to give to those who need something that God has asked you to give them. So that's a heart that you want to take into giving. Another way to think about this, or let me just illustrate it more, is that the purpose of giving is to help the weak. In Acts 20, verse 35, when Paul is leaving, um, he's speaking to the, the elders from Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. To Really, he doesn't know this. He's on his way to his own death. But... <clears throat> He makes an interesting statement. He said, "In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work. In other words, Paul, when he was at Ephesus, he was not only teaching, he was working. He was working as a tent maker. And he viewed that as part of his ministry. Teaching was ministry. Tent making was ministry. So this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. That is the powerless, the people that lack the ability to bring alignment with God. They they lack the ability to align with God. Remembering the words of Jesus himself said, "Is more blessed to give than receive. We don't have that recorded in the Gospels. So this is Paul telling us that Jesus said this. So I presume that he got this from Luke or from others, but he's quoting Jesus here, something that isn't recorded other places. So it's more blessed to give than receive. So we want to give to those who are the weak or the powerless, those who lack resources to do the will of God. They may lack emotional resources. They may lack moral resources, mental resources, directional, spiritual, physical, and or financial resources. There's all kinds of resources that we need to do the will of God. And so here's a number of examples of that. If you lack spiritual discipline, you you need discipline. If you lack faith, you need faith. If your conscience is weak, it needs to be strengthened. If you lack knowledge, you need knowledge and understanding and wisdom. If you are weak due to judgment for sin, you know, that you need to be strengthened. If you're weak due to divine discipline, you need to be strengthened. If you lack material provision, you may need material provision. So you see, there's all kinds of ways that we can be powerless to be able to do the will of God. And these are the people we're looking for, who in fundamentally is ready, is prompted by the spirit of God, is ready to do the will of God. And God gives us a grace to see it And he's chosen by virtue of his attribute of condescension to use us as an instrument to facilitate that alignment. You know, God funds his will, and the way he funds it many times is through his agents. So, for example, he funds his will, you know, for your children, largely through you as parents. You provide the resources they need. That's God's way of providing for them is through you. So that's the work of condescension. God condescends to using human beings, which means he did not have to use human beings. He has chosen to use human beings. He's lowered himself, in a sense, to use human beings to accomplish his will. So finally, let's uh, kind of focus in on this. How do we help the weak or the powerless? How do we be a cheerful giver? Well, we need to be very clear that this is something we're called to do. And we're clear that we want to facilitate alignment with God. We're not just giving to a nonprofit. We're not just giving to a perceived need. We're giving to the real need. The real need is always alignment with God. So Acts 4, verse 32, now the entire group of those who believe were of one heart and mind. This is referring to the first ecclesia. It refers to the mindset of this ecclesia after persecution, the whole community has come together to unified. They're rejoicing that they've been considered worthy to suffer for Christ, something we don't do today. So if they believe we're a one heart and mind. When you come together in unity with the agenda of doing the will and the ways of God, no matter what the cost, then no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held. Everything in common. That does not mean they were where it was communal living. It means simply that whatever the needs of the community were, the real needs, then the community would step up in a in a heartbeat to take care of it. Now, we know from Acts chapter five, it was not a communal situation. They had private property. It simply means that everybody's private property was available for the higher good of the community. That's the mindset that they lived in. I doubt you've ever seen a Christian community with a mindset like that. I haven't seen one like that. Uh, I haven't been part of one like that. That would be an incredible level of maturity, and perhaps it's going to take persecution for the body of Christ, just like it did in the first century. It may take persecution for us to be able to get to that place. So if the purpose of man is to do the will of God, then the best way to help others is to help them align with the will and ways of God. That is what our agenda is, and only when we really put God first will we ever begin to make everything we have available to what God wants to do with it. Now, an example of the distraction of today, of how we get so distracted from the reality of how God wants us to function is we get distracted on perceived needs. So here's a little image here in the PowerPoint of a panhandler. He has a perceived needs, Help wanted. I need to buy weed. Uh, now, obviously, that's a pretty uh, a clear, egregious need. And most of us would say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to support that. But if he didn't have, I'm going to help. If he just had help, I'm in need. He did explain why we might help him. Because it's a perceived need to us. We have to think deeper. We have to look deeper. Most panhandlers, from what I can tell, of what I've read, it's a scam. There may be some legitimate ones out there, but by and large, it's a scam. And we have a lot of people who profess to be Christians that are giving to it because they don't understand how to think with metaphysical awareness, which is to think deeper, to think from God's perspective. So we want to learn to give based not on perceived needs, But on real needs, what is God wanting us to fund? What is he directing us to do? Where is someone trying to align with God? This panhandler, if we just keep supporting him, he keeps living as a panhandler, never changing, we have not supported the will of God in him. We want to wait until he is humble and submitted and teachable, and he's willing to change. He wants alignment with God. Well, then we want to support that. So that's an example of how to think about this. Look for those who are legitimately seeking to do what God has called them to do. They're seeking alignment with God, and God is calling you to be his agent to provide the resources they need so that God gets a return on investment. So this is giving and tithing. This is the beginning of the five uses of money. We'll continue next month with the other three. And I just want to close by pointing you to uh, a text here that uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, which talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. He loves for us to hold on to our resources loosely and to be ready to be his agents when he directs us. The person who sows sparingly we also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. That uh, word uh, for cheerful there is a Greek word that we, a derivative of that, English derivative of that word, is the word hilarious. So God loves a hilarious, not in the sense of being ridiculous, but in somebody that just finds a lot of joy in it. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. You see, when God calls on you to be his agent to support something he wants done, it's going to bring you great joy. It's going to facilitate his purpose in you as well as in the purpose of the person that you invested in. So may God have us the grace, give us the grace to learn to tithe with the right motive, and may we learn to give in accordance with his will and his ways to facilitate alignment with himself. So may we have grace to do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.